and I uh, hope that you're enjoying being outdoors today. <coughs> you know, and, and oh, I got one, thank you. Uh, in everything we do, we, we always have two purposes as a church, you know, whether it's uh, doing a service outside like this, um, whether it's having a church barbecue, you know, we seek to always be doing two things in everything that we do. And one of them is we want to build up those who are believers to the knowledge of Christ. And the other one is that we want to reach those in our community who don't yet know the Lord, who don't walk with him, who aren't currently walking with him. And so I think it's just so symbolic, you know, our desire is to see the city of Longmont come to know Jesus Christ, and we want to see the knowledge of Jesus spread in our city. So how symbolic is it that we're out here in the park on the street, and we're saying, Jesus, come and reach Longmont. So I think it's a great thing, and uh, I hope you're enjoying it too. This morning, we're going to continue our study through Genesis. We are now in Genesis chapter 16, so if you have your Bibles, open up there. And we're going to get started, but before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have in our country to worship you freely. Thank you that we get to be outdoors in our city in this wonderful, beautiful weather that you've given us. And Lord, we ask that this morning your spirit would be here amongst us, teaching us, admonishing us, uh, giving us direction. Lord, giving us comfort to those who need it, giving challenges to those who are in need of that. Lord, so we ask that you would be here, that you would speak to us as we read your word, that we would hear your voice in it, and we would see your heart in it. And Lord, we ask that you would transform us this morning by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' powerful and precious name. Amen. Amen. (coughs) Well, I have a little bit of a cold this morning. I kind of lost my voice, so I hope you'll bear with me and not mind it too much. Um... I hope you're enjoying our study of Genesis. I, I certainly am. So uh, let me give you a little bit of background before we read Genesis chapter 16. We've been studying the life for a few chapters now and for a few chapters to come of a man named Abram. Now Abram was just an everyday regular guy. He was a guy living in a pagan city. He was from a dysfunctional family. He was not walking with God, but God spoke to him and God made him a promise. And he said, Abram, if you will close your eyes and take my hand and walk with me, then I will bless you more than you could possibly imagine. He said, I will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. I will make you a great nation. You see, Abram had no children. He was an old man, but God told him, if you will trust me, If you will walk with me, I will make you a great nation. I will give you descendants. They'll be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky, and you will be a great nation. And in you, all the people of the world will be blessed. Which means, which was God's way of telling him that through him was going to come the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer, the one who would come and redeem the world from the curse of sin and death. We know this man is Jesus Christ. That was the promise that God gave to Abram. And Abram said, you know what? I'll take you up on it. And Abram believed the word of God by faith, and he left home, and he followed God to the land of Canaan. That was 10 years ago, from the point where we pick up our story today. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to read the first couple verses here. Thank you. Okay, Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. 
And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to drink some water. So, what we see here is, is really a really bad episode in the life of Abram and Sarai. Um, the title of our message today is The God Who Sees. That is actually the name that Hagar, later on in the chapter, gives to God. Interestingly, this is one of the very few instances in the Bible when God allows someone to attribute a name to him. Usually, God is the one who tells people, this is who I am, this is my name. But Hagar, God allows Hagar to say, to give him a name, to attribute a name to him, and she gives him this name, the God who sees. This is really the major theme of this section, that God sees. Uh, we're going to focus on two aspects of this. Number one, that God sees us. He knows everything about us. He sees us even on our absolute worst days, but yet he loves us completely. And he reaches out to us always with the offer of grace and forgiveness and restoration if we will come to him with a heart of repentance. And secondly, the other aspect we want to talk about is that God sees the suffering of those who suffer. And he deeply cares about those who suffer. Therefore, it's important that God's people do the same. A little more water here. So, before we judge Abram and Sarah, let's try to put ourselves in their shoes for a second. <coughs> okay, ten years ago, God spoke to Abram and said, You're going to have a son. At that point, Abram was 75 years old. His wife was 65 years old, which means she was well past childbearing age. But Abram and Sarah decided to believe God's promise anyway and just trust that God would somehow do a miracle. But here we are 10 years later, and nothing's happened. 10 years! Abram stepped out in faith. He went to the land of Canaan, and he's been sitting in Canaan waiting for something to happen, but nothing is happening. Abram wants to be a dad, really bad. He's been married for a long time. He was promised a son, and it's getting really hard to wait at this point. Are there any of you guys who can relate to that? Can you identify with this man? How about you ladies? Can you identify with Sarai? She wants to be a mom, but she's not able to get pregnant. And you know that she must be terribly frustrated. What we're looking at here is probably decades of her struggling with infertility. And then God comes along and gives her this giant ray of hope and says, you're going to have a son. But then 10 years go by and nothing happens. Oh, my wife and I, you know, we have uh, a number of friends who've struggled with infertility. And we've seen how frustrated they are. And we've seen the pain that they experience as they see everyone around them having children, but for whatever reason, they can't. And 
these people, they want to be parents. They believe that they would make good parents, and yet they see people who aren't good parents, and they don't appreciate their children as much as they would appreciate a child, and those people don't struggle with infertility, and, and they can easily begin to wonder, why, God? Why am I not able to have a child? Why, why are there unfit mothers out there who can have children, but I can't? On top of that, Sarai knows that her husband desperately wants to have a child. But the problem is her. She's the one who's barren. It's not him who's the reason why they can't have children. It's her. So you got to, can you feel the tension which exists in this household every single day? The stress level is just, you know, the frequency is just up here, you know, the heavy frustration. <coughs> so Sarai says to Abram, she says, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Do you hear the bitterness, the anguish in those words? She's saying, I want to have a baby. God told me I would have a baby. But do you see a baby? Because I don't see a baby. And it's been 10 years. God has not come through on his promise. And I can't just keep sitting here on my hands waiting for God to do something. I've got to do something. I've got to take something into my own hands and make something happen. You know, she probably told him, Hey, Abram, doesn't it say in the Bible somewhere that God helps those who help themselves? That's not in the Bible, just in case you weren't clear on that. But uh, so she says, Abe, we've got to be a little proactive here. Here's what we're going to do. I have this servant girl. She can have our baby and then she'll give it to me and I'll sit in my rocking chair and I'll hold it and I'll get to be a mom and you'll get to have your son and your heir like you want. And God's promise can be fulfilled in that child. There we go. Problem solved. Let's do it. This was not actually an uncommon practice at this time. Uh, when you're talking about barrenness in a family, sometimes this is what was commonly done, actually. It was culturally acceptable. But was it the right thing to do? Not at all. Uh, the biblical model for marriage is found in Genesis chapter 2, where we see the first marriage, the first wedding ceremony, officiated by God himself. And we see that God's design for marriage from the beginning was one man and one woman making a commitment to each other before God to stay together forever. No girlfriends on the side, no second wife, these kind of things, right? So the point is that just because something's culturally acceptable doesn't mean that it's pleasing to God or according to his will. So in their desperation, here's Abram and Sarai trying to make something happen. It's not God's plan. It's not God's will. But they're trying to make it happen in their own ability, and then they're going to ask God to bless it. Have you ever done something like that? Some of us have. And when you do, what usually ends up happening is that you have a little Ishmael running around of your own creation rather than the Isaac that God intended to give you in his timing. So I know this is a family service, so I'm just going to say long and short of it, Hagar gets pregnant. I don't know how. I, just, she gets pregnant. So then uh, we read that Hagar began to look with contempt on Sarai. <coughs> Sarai is already way sensitive about this whole infertility issue, right? She's been trying to have a baby for decades. Then Hagar comes along, gets pregnant right away, and begins to mock her. And, you know, you can imagine what was going on in this house. It was very uncomfortable. She's sitting around saying, hey, look, Sarai, I'm starting to show, you know? Too bad you couldn't have a baby. Hey, do you want to come and feel the baby kick? Hey, I wonder if the baby's going to look like your husband, because he's probably not going to look like you. And Abram, you know, Abram, I'm tired. Could you come and rub my shoulders? This kind of stuff. And Sarai cannot take it anymore. 
There's one too many women in this house. And even though it was her idea in the first place, Sarai says, I can't handle it. And she goes off on Hagar. This is like a, a very bad episode of the Jerry Springer show. And Abram, you know, throughout this whole thing, he's like this kind of passive husband who never stands up for what's right. He never puts his foot down. He just goes along with whatever his wife wants, whether it's right or wrong. Uh, and he just says, you know, whatever you want, honey. You know, I just want you to be happy. I knew this couple, and the wife would always tell the husband, I mean, in front of other people as well, she'd always tell the husband, happy wife equals happy life. Now, this was kind of a threat, really, because it was her way of telling him, if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to make your life so horrible that you will wish that you were never born, right? It was just, it was like a threat. And every time I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's kind of scary. Uh, that's the picture we get of Abram and Sarai here. She's that woman. Ladies, don't be that woman. Men, don't be this guy, this kind of passive guy who just lets his wife do whatever she wants, even if it's wrong. So Hagar runs away because of how Sarai is mistreating her. Even though Sarah, or even though Hagar, I'm sorry, Hagar runs away because of how Sarai is treating her. So let me say this, even though Hagar had a role to play in, in this whole thing and ending up where she does, now Hagar is out on the street and she's homeless and she's pregnant and now she's facing the prospect of raising a child on her own. She lost her job. She's unemployed. Let's continue on and read the rest of the chapter. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they can be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar, before, uh, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Okay, so here's Hagar. Homeless, unemployed, and pregnant. Don't forget that Hagar is also a foreigner. She is in the land of Canaan, but she is an Egyptian. She is an immigrant. She came here to work as a maid. And she's living outside in the wilderness, and she's wondering... How am I going to raise this child? She's probably crying. She's very worried. And she looks up and, and who appears to her? It's the angel of the Lord. Now, now let me say this. This isn't just any angel. The term angel of the Lord is a very specific term. And it usually refers to an appearance of God himself in the Old Testament. We're going to see this angel of the Lord appear numerous times throughout the Old Testament. <clears throat> and the reason we know the angel of the Lord is actually God and not just an angel is, is two reasons. Number one, people worship the angel of the Lord. 
and this angel receives this worship rather than rejecting it as angels usually do. Uh, the other reason is because when people meet the angel of the Lord afterwards, they always say, I met God, right? That's exactly what uh, uh, Hagar does here too. Uh, so what we have here is called a Christophany, right? It's an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And the text tells us that it was in fact the Lord, Yahweh, who appeared to Hagar and spoke to her. And since no one has ever seen God the Father, but Jesus, right, the second person of the Trinity, the, is the image of the invisible God. That's what God's Word calls him. That means that when people see God in the Old Testament, they are seeing an appearance of Jesus, God the Son, before he was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. So, <coughs> all that just to clarify this. Who appears to Hagar when she's by the well, in the wilderness, crying and distraught, homeless and unemployed and pregnant and totally destitute and helpless and without any hope? Who appears to her? It's Jesus. How beautiful is that? Jesus shows up and meets this woman when she's lost everything. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. He pursues people. He meets people right where they are. You know, it isn't that God waits until people are at their absolute lowest point to show up and reach out to them. But for many people, it's only when they are at the end of themselves, at the lowest point, when they realize that they have nothing and nobody and they realize that God has been there all along and he's offering them hope and restoration and love. Think about this. Did Hagar sin? Did she have a part to play in how she got to where she's at right now? Yes, she did. But Jesus came to her anyway. She wasn't looking for Jesus, but he was pursuing her. Did she love God? I don't think so, but I know that God loved her. Was she calling on the name of the Lord? No, but God was calling her. That is the amazing God that we serve. And, and Jesus speaks to Hagar and he said, I know that this is a hard time, but you're going to have a son. And I want you to see that, that I have seen your situation. And I have heard your crying and I love you and I love your son. And he tells her, I want you to name him Ishmael, which means God hears me. And he tells her, he is going to be a wild donkey of a man, which in Hebrew means he's going to have major ADD, right? And he's going to be an antagonistic man who fights against his brethren. Uh, you know, Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab nation, as we all know. There's a conflict going on for a couple thousand years now between the Arabs and the Jews, still to this day. And it has its roots all the way back here, where Abram and Sarai decided that instead of waiting on God, they're going to take things into their own hands. So how about that for long-term implications of sin, right? 4,000 years of bloodshed with more to come. So God says to Hagar, it's going to be a hard life, but Hagar, I'm going to tell you what to do. If you will listen to my instruction, I will tell you what to do so that you can make the best out of this situation. And he says to her, here's what, here's what you're going to do. He says, I want you to go back to Sarai and submit to her. Isn't that surprising to you? When you read that, you're like, what? Are you serious? Go back to Sarai, who mistreated her, who kicked her out on the street? Are you serious? Yeah. And, and here's why. Let me tell you why after I drink this. All right. Well, let's look at Hagar's situation right now. She's homeless. She has no money, no job. She's living in the wilderness. 
She's pregnant with an illegitimate biracial child, and no one is going to want to marry her in this society. So this child's going to be born into an extremely desperate situation. <coughs> and God looks at her and says, Okay, look, Sarai sinned, Abram sinned, Hagar, you sinned too, but this child should not be the one who suffers as a result of it. So God tells her to go back. He says, go back to Sarai. And if she does this, she's going to have to humble herself. She's going to have to apologize for her part in the conflict. And she's going to have to ask for forgiveness. Hagar's going to have to lay down her pride, but it's in the best interest of the child. Even though this child was conceived and born in a way that wasn't according to God's plan and God's will, God loves this child very much. And as a result of Hagar humbling herself and going back to Sarai, this boy is going to have a dad. He's going to have a dad who will take care of him and feed him and raise him and play with him and love him. We need to understand, guys, God wants kids to have fathers. That's very important to the heart of God. Our God describes himself as a father, and it's important to him that children have fathers. One thing that's interesting is that the United States government agencies have actually done a lot of research into the effects of fatherlessness because they believe that it's at somewhat of an epidemic rate in our society and that it has a profound impact on our society. So I got some statistics here. These are from a pretty reliable source. It's the United States Department of Health and Human Services and the National Center for Health Statistics. And here's what they say. 36% of children in the United States live in fatherless homes. That's more than one-third. Um, and then here's a quote about fatherlessness and its impact on society. Fatherless children are at a dramatically greater risk of drug and alcohol abuse, mental illness, suicide, poor educational performance, teen pregnancy, and criminality. So what that means is that kids need dads. Kids need good dads. Studies have proven that especially boys need dads. And if you're a Christian man with children, your calling is to be a father to your children in a way that reflects the father heart of God. One of the interesting things that's been discovered is that a person's picture of God, what they innately assume that God is like, is very much shaped by their own father. Um, people with strict fathers or angry fathers tend to automatically think of God in those terms. People with fathers who are not trustworthy, they tend to think of God automatically in those terms. Uh, even popular culture recognizes this. <laughs> Maybe you know the movie Fight Club. Well, here's a quote from the novel which came before the movie. It's not the whole quote. The whole quote's actually pretty profound, but it is family day, so I'm going to keep it nice. But it says this. This is what the mechanic says. You know, essentially the book Fight Club, it's about a man who grows up in a fatherless home and the effects that it has on his life. That's not as much reflected in the movie. But here's a quote from the, the novel. He says, this is the mechanic speaking. He says, If you're male and living in the United States, your father is your model for God. And if you never know your father, if your father bails out or is never around, then what do you believe about God? So men, you play an important role in the lives of our children. Uh, if there are any single moms here, let me say this. Know that the best thing you can do is lead your kids to the Lord and teach them that the Lord is the father of the fatherless and that he can abundantly supply all of their needs. And for all of us, we need to make sure that we get our picture of who God is, not from our own fathers who are flawed men, even the best of them 
but we need to get our image of who God is from God's word, and we need to get our image of what a father is from God's word. You know, that, that way we can learn how to be a true father, by learning the father heart of God. That's the only way we can become fathers that our kids need, the kind of fathers that really God wants us to be and glorify him. You know, in our society, there are a lot of single moms. That's just a, a reality of the society we live in. And what we see here with Hagar is this. No matter what the reason why a woman ends up as a single mom, even if it's a result of their own mistake, here's what, what God's Word shows us. God cares very much about these women. And He cares very much about these children. And He desires to give them hope and a future. In our psalm we read today, we read that God is Father of the fatherless and He is the protector of widows. And I believe that applies to single mothers as well. One of the prominent themes of the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, but especially the Old Testament, is that God is very much concerned about the most vulnerable people in our society. In the Old Testament prophets, there were four groups of people who are mentioned over and over and seen as the most vulnerable people in society. They were orphans, widows, the poor, and immigrants or foreigners. These were the people who were most vulnerable, most easily taken advantage of. And it's essentially the same in our society as well. I would even add to that list for our day today, single moms, children in single parent homes, as well as the elderly. And, and over and over in the Old Testament, right, uh, especially in the prophets, the people of Israel are rebuked by God for failing to protect and care for orphans and widows, the poor and the immigrants. And it's never contingent on how or why they came to be in a vulnerable position. God simply cared about them. He was concerned about their well-being. He wanted his people to care about them and protect them and care for their well-being. And that same attitude is carried over into the New Testament, especially the book of James, which is, you know, James is very concerned about the poor. And he also, uh, in one verse, he, he talks he says this, this is a verse that played a big part in my life personally. He says this in James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, the message of the book of James is essentially that if your Christian faith is merely philosophical, if it's all about sitting around debating systematic theology, but all that theory never translates into a changed heart that cares for the things that God cares for and a changed life that manifests itself in real actions, then probably you haven't understood the gospel for real. Take a drink here. So Hagar names this well. She names it Ber Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. Jesus came to this woman at her lowest point and he told her, I see you're crying, I see your situation, and I care about you, and I care about your child, and I am committed to looking out for you and protecting you. And she says, if you will listen to me, I will give you instructions so that you can make the best out of this difficult situation. In this, we see the compassionate heart of God towards those who are suffering. And even today, He is the God who hears. He is the God who sees the plight of those who are vulnerable in our society, who suffer. And He is committed to looking out for them and protecting them. For those of us who are Christians, you know, God's desire is that we would share His heart 
that we would share his concerns, all of his concerns, and that we would be instruments through whom he can accomplish his purposes on earth. And what that means is that if God cares about the suffering of vulnerable people in our society, then we should care about it too. And God says that he's a protector and a provider for these people. That means that we will represent the heart of God. We will represent God in doing his work if we protect these people and provide for them as well. It's my opinion personally that we are going to see Hagar in heaven. I, I believe that she came to real faith in God after her encounter with Jesus at the well. I mean, it'd be hard not to. But also because we see that she obeys Jesus and she has a heart of repentance. She goes to Abram and Sarai. She apologizes for her part and, uh, and they take her back in. But even though, <coughs> excuse me, even though I believe that Hagar became a believer, I want you to notice that Jesus came to her when she was not a believer. He loved her when she did not love him. Do you know that God loves people who do not love him, who do not obey him? Did you know that God blesses people who do not bless him? And that really is the example that Jesus gave us to follow as well, which is, which is very challenging, I think. He said this, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6. He says, If you love those who love you, then what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But he said this, Love your enemies, do good, and lend, and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. And I love this. He says, You will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. What that means is that we, re we reflect the nature and character of God. We bring Him the most glory when we love people as He loves people. When we are all about blessing people, just as He is all about blessing people. And not just people who agree with everything we agree with or believe everything we believe. Not just people who are our friends, but people who are different than us even. And in doing so, we please the heart of God because we are being His hands and feet in this world. Tools through whom He can express Himself to the world. In Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll finish with this. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul explains the gospel to us in this way. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul the Apostle says this. Speaking to believers, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. This is the gospel. That just like Hagar, this world is full of people who are living according to the customs of this world, who are living according to cultural norms, the passions of their flesh, with no concern for God. But inside, spiritually, in the deepest part of who they are, they are dead. I I think two of the most glorious words in the entire Bible, two of the most profound words in the entire Bible, are found here at the beginning of verse 4. He says, But God... He says, you were lost, you were dead, you were destined for wrath, but God, but God intervened in your situation, but God loved you when you didn't love him, but God sought you out when you were not seeking him, but God provided a way through Jesus Christ for you to become alive in the deepest part of who you are. He provided a way for you to become forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God and have eternal life in heaven. And not only that, not only does he save you by his grace, but the full circle of the gospel is this. He makes you into something. He doesn't just save you from something. He makes you into something. He makes you into his workmanship. That word in Greek is the word poema, which, which means a work of art. The gospel is this, that God saves you, and then he makes you into a work of art. And the purpose of that work of art is expression. God makes you into a work of art by changing your life, by preparing good works for you to just walk in them. And that way you can be the canvas, you can be the platform upon which God expresses himself to the world. That's the full circle of the gospel. God reaches out to you, makes you truly alive, saves you, and then forms you into a work of art through whom he can express himself to the world. This is the God who sees. He sees you and he knows you. He knows you even better than you know yourself. Most people would believe that they, it is possible to be fully known. Others would believe also, they would say, it's possible to either be fully known or fully loved. Because if someone gets to know you fully, then they can't fully love you, right? And if someone loves you fully, well, it's probably because they don't know you completely. But here's the gospel message. The gospel message is this, that God knows you fully. He knows you completely and he loves you completely. And no matter what is in your past, whether years past or even just this past week, know this, in Jesus Christ there is hope for forgiveness and redemption and restoration. That's what we see in this story of the God who sees. Amen? Let's stand up and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who sees. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God who sees us, Lord. And we know that you know us completely. You see us even on our worst days. You see us when we make mistakes and when we falter. But Lord, thank you that you fully love us. Lord, that your love is unconditional. And Lord, that you love us with an everlasting love. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. Thank you, Lord, that you are good. And we just bask in and behold your glory and your goodness. And we say, thank you, Lord. And if there's anyone here amongst us today who has not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, 
as their Redeemer. Lord, I pray that you would bring that conviction in their heart that they need to do that. Because, Lord, you are the only one who can save them and redeem them. You are the only one who has the words of eternal life. So, Lord, we dedicate this day to you. We ask that you do a great work in our hearts, in our lives, and in our city. And we pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.